Hello, dear friends. Thank you so much for listening to us. And, uh, you know, life has been really busy for me lately. And I sincerely apologize for not taking enough time to edit and post this episode earlier. And uh, I, I really wanted to, but I never had enough time, even though, you know, I feel privileged and lucky that I have been vaccinated almost two months ago and uh, I even traveled abroad overseas from the States uh, to Europe and uh, all of that. But also I've been doing conferences, a lot of conferences, and I have another one by the way and it's free so you can join it in three days and uh, there will be a lot of wonderful speakers talking about Java uh, JVM, Kotlin, etc. So as a token of appreciation, I would like to give you a 50% discount for uh, paid tickets. The conference is free, but there are paid tickets too. And just used, use Programming Love, all capitals without white space as a discount code and you'll get 50% off. And thank you and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Programming Love Podcast, Episode 7. I'm your host, Oli, and this is a high-fidelity podcast where we meet passionate people and discuss programming. On this podcast, you'll hear stories from individuals around the world on their journeys and the joys and pains they experience along the way, so we can all learn and move forward together. And today, I also have my co-host, Anton. Hi there. Yes, and we have a wonderful guest. Uh, Kelsey Hightower. Kelsey Hightower has worn every hat possible throughout his career in tech and enjoys leadership roles focusing on making things happen and shipping software. Kelsey is a strong open source advocate focused on building simple tools that make people smile. And I'm smiling right now. When he's not slinging uh, Go code. You can catch him giving technical workshops covering everything from programming to system administration. So, hello. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming. So, before uh, you came here, uh, before the episode, we were discussing that you're a visionary, that you uh, inspire people in tech and also has your uh, opinions on how and where uh, the technology should or will go. So, and uh, I would like to set up the main topic for today's episode uh, is discussing the uh, current developments and uh, current uh, trends in software. And uh, we've got a few um, blog post that we want to discuss with you, except one thing. Um, 
you gave a lot of interviews, at least I found a few, about Kubernetes and your uh, career from the beginning and uh, till the end. So I would rather not focus on that in this uh, podcast because it's already covered somewhere else, if that's okay with you. <clears throat> that's great. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. So, Anton, uh, you posted this uh, technology radar uh, trend. Oh, yeah. Like... Uh, that's that's kind of a well-known resource <laughs> by ThoughtWorks where they built kind of a map of uh, different technologies um, in in a scale from adopt to hold or access or trial. And uh, they are looking at different techniques, tools, languages, platforms, uh, what would they adopt in their projects and what would not their um what they would not suggest using for now or what would they suggest to access or assess or um, adopt uh, for, for others. <clears throat> I'm not sure. It's, it's not the latest issue. I think uh, the latest, latest uh, issue of that radar has been published in December. So it's not really recent anymore. Uh, so should we look at that first or uh, we have another resource which was published yesterday about the languages? That's up to think? Kelsey. What do you want to look first at? <clears throat> Anything's fair game. We can go in any direction. Technologies, programming languages. Um, that's pretty much my, my day job at this point. Let's look at the platforms that there are. I, I will post the link in our chat so that we could look at the same page, I guess. Yeah, there it is. So it's interesting that in this part of their report, they are not suggesting to look to adopt any platform, but they are just, uh, they have just mapped out the trial and access, assess uh, categories, mostly. And uh, that's a little bit strange, or if you're suggesting to adopt something, it's it's a major technology and doesn't make sense to to put it on the map. I don't know. But anyways, like I I would put into adopt any cloud platform there, right? So like Google, Amazon, uh, Azure, uh, any others. But for some reason they are not there. But it's interesting to look at the assess category, I think it's the largest one in, in their report right now. Uh, like, for instance, Pulumi. Have you heard about Pulumi? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm looking over this list and, you know, things like Pulumi, which is, you know, if you're familiar with Terraform, you know, the whole infrastructure is code movement. You know, you have this idea that, you know, all these cloud <clears throat> providers have different ways of interacting with their APIs. You can pick a tool like Terraform, which chooses HCL as its programming language of choice. And then the Plumi community kind of looks at all these declarative configs and says something's missing. The power of a full programming language. And so when you look at Plumi, you know, there's all of these libraries that try to give you these really clean ways of doing some similar tasks with way less code, but a full-blown programming language as most developers would expect. So if you kind of have this full stack engineer mindset, maybe you're practicing DevOps where you share responsibility, 
I can see how some people look at Pulumi and say, hey, maybe this is the tool that we use instead of all of these maybe slightly different config languages. So I can see how, you know, maybe they're starting to see people show up and say, hey, we want to try out Pulumi for our next project. Well, it seems to me that there is like a, the crowd is separated very much. Like uh, the first part of the crowd would be like YAML oriented. Right. We can do everything in a declarative way and use YAML for that or any any other markup language. And then there is part of the community that says, hey, we don't like all those drawbacks that this declarative configuration brings. And we want to have control over what we actually write. And uh, we need better, you know, validation for, for whatever we create. Uh, so like... It, it sounds appealing to have compiler checks on your configuration, right? Yeah, but I think in the case of this one, you know, like Kubernetes dictates that there's a data model for everything it does, right? That's just how that particular layer of the platform. Other platforms like serverless platforms also are now delivering these declarative APIs. So now I think it comes down to what interface do you want? Do you want a command line tool? Do you want to just use curl and call the raw API? Do you want to use Terraform or do you want to use Plumi, right? And let's not forget about all the people that are still using Ansible, which is largely Python intermixed with some YAML uh, constructs. People are still using Chef and Puppet, which are largely either Ruby or their own custom DSL. I just don't think there'll ever be one. So I think what's happening here is that more people's preference of working, there are more tools that are showing up that aligns with that subset of people who say, hey, you know, I think one thing that is commonly shared, people do like the fact that there is a low level data model now. So if you want to go from Pulumi to Terraform or just writing YAML by hand, that's available to you. It wasn't like that before, right? Before it's you pick a tool, you're stuck with that tool forever and you have to go rewrite all your code. And hopefully there's a language module to interact with those underlying APIs. So I think we're sliding into a world where we're treating infrastructure as data versus a bunch of APIs. Yep, it's like uh, every problem in computer science can be solved by adding another layer of indirection. It sounds to me like that. Basically, we have a model and we can generate it in whatever way we want. I'm pretty sure someone's going to show with a Haskell tool that for people that want to do everything with peer functions, right? There's just no limit to it because there's just so many people working on these particular problems that they're eventually going to solve it in a way that they think is best. And given the way open source works, they're probably going to share it with the world and it will get traction by a subset of our communities. Yeah. But one interesting part there uh, in this map, uh, in, in this quarter of this map, let's say in the platforms, category is uh, the hold category where we have just node overload. Uh, basically, I'm, I'm looking at what's written here and uh, I guess it's something against node as node.js. Yeah, so I just clicked on it. So it's basically saying, hey, look, there's a tendency to use node uh, indiscriminately for the wrong reasons, right? So, you know, maybe there's an enterprise who says we went to some conference you know, JavaScript is still arguably the most, you know, used programming language in the world. And so you go to a conference and they're like, hey, you can use JavaScript on the front end and the back end. 
And I think a lot of enterprises just went crazy and says, oh, we can finally do it. We can add another language to our backend stack outside of maybe Java. And now we can bring in JavaScript. Now we're cool, right? We're doing Node.js. Everybody wants to work on Node.js. There's like 700,000 frameworks to choose from. We're using one of them. And I think people just got a misguided. I was actually running an engineering org. And I remember the team just really, really wanted to use Node.js so bad. I was like, why do you want to use Node.js for this backend project? I get JavaScript for a lot of front end. It's really great for that. Lots of knowledge, lots of framework. But the back end for the microservices and RESTful APIs we were building, there was not a lot of value when we started to talk about like resiliency, right? Like this thing would crash or how it would handle error recovery. And so it just, it felt like it was more of a fad than a great engineering choice at the time. And I think a lot of enterprises have kind of made the same mistakes and, hey, we want to write this in Node.js, but why? Because we're going to pick the language first before even thinking about the broader ecosystem for the problem we're trying to solve. So I think that's what they're hitting. That's like, we need to hold on with using Node by default for everything. We don't need to use it for machine learning just because JavaScript is used in other places. Doesn't mean we have to use it in all the places. Uh, you know, I have something to say about this. So I'm coming from Scala world. I'm a Scala developer and there is Scala JS. Uh, which is uh, allowing you to write uh, front-end in Scala, apparently. And uh, that is uh, the justification for this is that uh, you don't have to uh, hire a lot of uh, different engineers. Uh, you have your um, spot with Scala developers and they can do uh, front-end and back-end. Uh, so I think the same idea is here. Uh, enterprises, uh, a lot of the times, are excited about Node.js because they don't have to hire uh, people from uh, hire different developers. They kind of found their way, found how they uh, conduct interviews, how they uh, like find resources for uh, hiring people. And uh, that's one of the reasons, like you think, okay, I have the silver bullet and now I can uh, invite a JS developer to my team and they can do both backend and frontend. I think that was the idea, right? And then you go and find out, hey, a lot of these platforms, the syntax is the least of your problems, right? Like if you wanna go do iOS, the SDKs, the libraries start to dominate, you know, what you're going to get out of those. So, you, you know, maybe a company's like, we're going to figure out how to rewrite all the iOS libraries into JavaScript or JavaScript compatible. So we don't have to learn those things, but we all know you get to a point where you have to break out into the native language to get something done. And do you end up with a diminishing set of returns if you try to shoo everything into one spot? So yeah, it definitely makes sense why people would want to go that route. But I think a bit of pragmatism and honesty is required before we believe that there will be one framework for everything. Well, the thing is, um, even though it's appealing to have the single language for both backend and frontend, and well, I'm guilty for that too. I'm part of Kotlin development team, uh, and and we are aiming Kotlin for backend, Kotlin for frontend, Kotlin for mobile, any everything. So it's appealing to have the same language, but. Uh, you have a different domain, right? So the front-end developer who works with JavaScript he has completely different domain and uh, problems to work with than the back-end developer. 
where you have to think of databases, transactions, concurrency, whatever else you have there, uh, resiliency. And then on one front end, you have this domain object model, rendering, I don't know, downloading resources and, and, and so on. There's completely different domains where you can't really just take one person and drop into the other domain without you know, proper training. Of course, the, the, the same tool will actually help a little bit so that you don't have to, I don't know, uh, break up for learning a different language, probably. Uh, it depends, I think. But, but it, it's, it's an appealing thing to have the same language for different domains, I think, still. Right, but but in this particular context that we had in in the radar, uh, Node.js is like they they are looking at it as an as at a runtime, not as a language, right? So you you can actually write uh, TypeScript instead of JavaScript, and I, I see a lot of companies are doing it. Like some some startups here in Estonia, I know that they are using Node.js, but they're they're writing stuff in TypeScript and pretty happy about it. Yeah, I, I think it would definitely work. I mean, if I have my choice, I'm probably picking something like Golang, just thinking about what that runtime particularly gives me and the standard libraries and the type of systems build with Go. You know, this is probably why I would prefer for that particular set of tasks. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely get the appeal. Uh, but I'm just at this point, right tool for the job. I just, it's hard to shoehorn. I've seen people try to recreate libraries that don't exist and then instead of writing code leveraging all of that cost savings from using the same language they're off maintaining a whole bunch of libraries <laughs> to fill in all of the gaps because very few people are using that particular runtime or stack in that particular domain right so talking about the popularity of the languages we have another resource uh, which was published just yesterday so i think it was just a good intro to that topic so redmonk uh, well, you know, all kind of popularity indexes are there, like Tiobe is, is the one. Uh, some people like it, some people hate it. I, I, I actually hate it because it's, I think it's not, uh, I, I think it's not a valuable, viable metric to just count the searches. But Redmonk's uh, stats uh, is something that I, I really like. They correlate the number of questions on Stack Overflow and uh, and uh, the number of repositories created at GitHub. Uh, so that one looks more like a, a true story for me. So they just published a new report yesterday and uh, well, JavaScript is the number one there. And uh, it, they say it's, uh, it's going to take a long time when it changes. So we, 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 we have JavaScript here for, for good and for long. Uh, but the other uh, languages, especially when you look at uh, at the bottom, like uh, number 10, number 15, they are changing. There are some trends there. And uh, it's interesting that Ruby and Go are actually losing, uh, losing the positions, as they say. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's really true or not. Uh, but, well, they, they provide the evidence. With, with yeah, numbers. so I, I guess for me, it's like, what are you trying to win? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, if I was like, contributing to a project written in one of these languages, 
uh, that language will be number one in that project because that's how you would do it. So I kind of look at these as like, cool, it's kind of good to know if these um, projects are still seeing contributions. Is the maintainership pretty healthy? Is the governing body, is that healthy? What's the roadmap look like? Is there a great feedback loop with their ecosystems? How are the projects written in those languages thriving, right? Are those mm -hmm. projects still seeing adoption? Are people using them? I think when it comes to Go, Go is, it's one of those languages that gets boring really quick, which is why I like it. You know, you will complain about Go and say, oh, it doesn't have these 27 things in the other language I was using that I don't want to use anymore because it has too many things. <laughs> so then you come over to Go and you say, hey, I want something that looks familiar, but it's one of those languages. Once you learn it, you find that you can actually do the things you want to do. And the things it's not good at, it tells you this is not what we want to do. You should go pick a different language or runtime. So I think Go becomes that tool in the toolbox that just works for its design purpose. And after that, you're not going to make a lot of noise about it. You just kind of know what you need to do. You may not ask as many questions on Stack Overflow going forward. You, you know, these days I have to hunt very little for how to do something in Go. I can kind of just express my ideas. Of course, if I run into a new library, I don't remember all the, you know, parameters to every function. But these days I don't necessarily get too tripped up on how to implement uh, things in Go. So I'm one less person on Stack Overflow looking for Go content. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm quite uh, with you on this uh, because like it, this, this report definitely doesn't show how healthy the the projects in specific language are it's it's more like about popularity uh in the community right the two communities stack overflow and github and basically what what are the i don't know numbers there Not, nothing nothing really specific but it's interesting still like uh like the, the newer languages the newer are those who are like 10 years old already like go and kotlin and whatever scala they are even 15 years old already but then we have php which is still on the top and i don't i don't know that many okay i'm, I'm in a bubble myself i i don't have that many friends who program php because friends don't let friends program in php uh, but still if you look at this uh, ranking there php is in like top there is a whole world of WordPress and plugins and yeah. uh, themes for that. And everything is written on P in PHP. So that's the thing, I guess. What, what I want to ask, since I don't have a lot of Go developers, and recently, uh, about a month ago, there was a blog post about generics uh, in Go. So what's your opinion on that? It's a little bit different from the main topic that we're discussing, but still, I, I no, wonder. it's it's exactly so many jokes. <laughs> yeah, I think the Go team was really focused on designing a language for its purpose, and it turns out people want to use it to all kind of things, like make databases, web APIs. There's even mobile development. Uh, there's now a way to generate code that can run on WASM runtime. So. Of course, we started to attract lots of developers. And I think maybe even going back in the early days of Go, people were like, you need generics. And they made one good argument. It's like Go internally has the ability to generate generic code, right, for its internal types. But as a user of the language, I don't have access to the same facilities 
that Go does. And I think that was the most compelling argument to say, look, we have to do something here. But we didn't want to make it um, a situation where people start abusing generics. I've seen this where you just go to some language and you're like, why are we using generics here? You're just doing this because maybe you learned it this week and now you have generics all over the code. Have no, I don't understand why we're even doing this because we don't even need it here. So the GOAT team was very patient. We had a lot of great proposals. People like Robert Greason more. This guy like create the hotspot compiler for job. Like he knows what he's doing. He created the V8 engine, right? He knows what he's doing, but he also wanted to avoid a bunch of issues in the past. So they were very patient with the proposal. So what do we have? Right. So when you look at the current proposal that is now accepted, for most people, all Go code will always look the same. If you're writing code that's going to be generic code, we're pushing the contract on the developer of the generic code to specify pretty much everything that can be accepted. Uh, we have a lot of safeguards so we can actually leverage the type system pretty well without throwing away some of the things that make Go unique, like the way we think about objects, the way we think about embedding those objects. And so if you think about it, a module developer can add generics, but then the function signature can look exactly the same. So we have the ability to infer that, hey, this is a generic thing. The compiler can tell you if what you're passing in is compatible. And what that means is that most people using generic code don't have to even think about it, know about it, and it would just look like all other Go code. This is a, on the readability front, on the usage front, I think this is a huge win. We don't, we're not forced to write new syntax to invoke some method or something. This is great. You do have the option though, if, like if what you're trying to do requires that little bit of uh, statistics sugar to help the compiler, you can do that, but you're not forced to. So what they did was say, hey, the majority of code that will be written will look the same as existing code. And I think that's what took us so long to make sure we arrived at that. Because I think the iteration before actually looked pretty good, but they couldn't give that particular promise. So they put it on pause and kept at it. So where we're at now, you're going to have the ability to have some generic code um, that's going to prevent you from writing too much boilerplate. I think our implementation is going to be closer to code generation um, than it is some other systems. But I think it's a happy medium and it's going to allow people to write just enough generic code without going crazy. This, this is something that I like about uh, simple solutions as well. Like if you look at Java, Java's generics, right? They, uh, they are not so powerful as, as uh, generics in other languages, but I was pretty happy programming without generics in Java as well. They, they simplified some of my code, but I wouldn't, say that I could go into more advanced cases with generics. And if I look at Scala generics, for instance, this is like a computer science, like rocket science for me. I, I never, I, I could never grasp that thing. Ollie is laughing uh, loudly yeah, on that. You're probably talking about her kind of types and all context sure. bounds and everything. Exactly. Another right. thing popped out in my mind. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit random, but I, yesterday I was just uh, reading this blog. I, I, I'm not sure if I can find it right now about static types for Python. <laughs> oh. What do you think about it? I started, you know, when I, when I 
after doing a lot of shell programming, Python was one of the first, like, I guess, quote unquote, real programming languages I landed on. And there is a beauty to writing very simple outside of the indentation. I think that always tripped me up at some point, but it was pretty easy, right? You pick it up, you just assume a bunch of things, and then you write 10 times more unit tests to challenge those assumptions, right? Because of the lack of the type information. And so I think that's cool, but I think eventually people started to say, hey, I have no idea what this value is, right? You have to then go and click 5,000 times to say, oh, this is a dictionary or a list and it still works, huh? <laughs> and that to me is like, when you're writing code, it may feel like it's a, it's a speed boost, but when you have to come back and read that, no matter what anyone says, you now have to try to dig and, and do some investigation to figure out what will happen here. And the bad, I think the other drawback is sometimes you'll pass a string and it will still work. And you're like, well, okay, now do I put defensive programming here to say, hey, if this is not a list or dictionary, do not do this. And so you're starting to ask like, wait a minute, I thought you didn't want the extra boilerplate. This is worse because now I got to read the body of this to figure out what will happen if I pass in the wrong thing. And so I think a lot of people are starting to realize is that there's a balance. When I learned Java back in the day, I was like, this is ridiculous. I don't know how you could write Java without an IDE. It just is very ceremonious, right? You have to put so many things on both sides of that equation that it's just too much work. But in the Go world, we have types, but it feels like Python most of the time. Our inference uh, inside of that language is so nice that most people don't think about types in the same way from other languages. So I think realizing that you can walk a delicate uh, balance, you don't have to trade off those aspects of dynamic programming and throw away all your types in the process. But yep. what you said is like the compiler can infer types uh, and this is still static uh, typing, but just with smart compiler. Is that correct, what I'm saying? Exactly. And then the runtime enforcement, right? So if I build time, it's like you can't, you can't do that. So now it's like, oh, okay, let me go and fix this code to make sure that the right things are being passed around. So that's that front-loaded um, communication. And also in our unit tests, most people, especially in the Go world, when you look at the code, it seems pretty simple, but we don't have to write all these kind of tests that say, is if a dictionary gets passed in here, then do this kind of thing, right? We eliminate that kind of code. So I think there's a nice balance of both worlds. Which brings me to my uh, lovely pond of functional programming. <laughs> This is my place where I live. <laughs> and the uh, idea most of the times that uh, you make compiler do a lot of things for you uh, so that in the runtime, you don't have to care. Like if the code compiles, then it works. Uh, so how, like, is... <laughs> I don't know how to ask this embarrassing question, but is functional programming the future <laughs> or not, in your opinion? All I can do is talk from experience. I remember learning Haskell back in the day. I was so happy. I bought a Haskell book. I was like, this is so beautiful. I can take a value from one through infinity, and it will just say, I know what to do here. 
I won't even evaluate this until you need it. I was like, this lazy stuff is amazing. Uh, there's a bit of safety that comes from kind of some of the restrictions, some of the pattern matching, a lot less ifs, a lot less else. You try to avoid all these side effects and it's beautiful until you need to open a file or you need to communicate on the network. Then they say, oh, something monad, something, something. The universe is unpredictable. I was like, how do we go from this clean function that adds two numbers to the whole universe is unpredictable. <laughs> and I think at some point, the functional world has a reality is that very rarely are you going to work on code that doesn't interact with the outside world. And so I think what you can say is that maybe a large part of your code base can be broken down into functions that are tight, easy to test, easy to reason about. And then you move all the things that interact with the outside world into its own layer, right? So maybe the thing that, you know, takes a, an HTTP packet, you know, unmarshals it, grabs the data out, and then invokes one of these very safe functions. But the way most developers work, most runtimes try to optimize for one or the other, right? So it's like, hey, I'm really good at this part, but I'm not really good at this particular part because I don't give you the same ways to safeguard. So I don't know. I think there's going to be a mix where you can mix the two. I've done that in the Haskell world where you kind of write these peer functions and all they do is have a very simple interface. And then the thing on the outside is written in another language that has better exception handling, better tools to reason about things. So I don't know. I just think that that whole functional world, it's great. I'm glad we're aiming for that because things like map and list comprehensions are beautiful constructs that you find in other languages. So I think that that idea has helped us a lot to think about, think about your inputs, think about side effects. And if you're going to have them, put them somewhere and, and kind of express what they mean and what they do. I'm glad to hear that. Perfect. Uh, so we, we could probably change the topic a little bit and, and like... Uh, make it a little bit more general. So there is a lot of like trends and technologies appearing all the time and uh, maybe even like bigger technology trends like I'm, I'm referring at machine learning or uh, artificial intelligence or anything like that. So, and, and it's a kind of interesting question that was uh, given to me recently. People are asking, how do you keep up with the trends and how do you learn about the new trends appearing because we are today today we are hostages of social networks we just we are in the bubble we that we create for our for ourselves right so we we know about the news about the new programming language whatever we know about the news about uh, some some library or a framework maybe a platform but then the global trends how do you follow the global trends that's interesting and how do you get to know that there is something similar to machine learning appearing. So how do you cope with that, Kelsey? I don't. You know, what I you try don't. to do is figure you, you, out. You are in your own bubble. Well, I mean, the thing is, most of us, in reality, we use the tools to solve the problems in front of us, right? Like, I'm, it's unfortunate for me, I only know one spoken language. I know English. That's it. Now, I might try to go look up a few words if I'm going to go travel to another country. I'll say, hey, I got a new problem. I'm going to land in a particular country and maybe English isn't the primary language. Um, what do I want to do? Do I get a little cheat sheet? Do I try to recognize at least a few words? 
Uh, so that can help me once I get there. But if I don't live there, I'm probably not going to commit to learning that language just to keep up with all the languages in the world. There's just too many. So typically humans tend to gravitate towards tools that we need to actually use or use at some point. So when I look at all the technology trends, most of the fundamentals look the same. You got data that's generated by a system. You can put all the data in a certain place and you can ask the data questions. Sometimes there are questions that are hard to answer because you don't have enough data to look at trends. Like, is this person going to buy red or blue shoes? Well, you don't have enough data to make that guess. You probably need other data to predict that particular thing. So machine learning might be the right tool to start approximating things. So then it may be worth learning how to translate what's in your mind into a model that the computer can use to train to make decisions as accurate as you are. That's the fundamentals of machine learning. Do I have that kind of problem right now? No. Am I going to go spend time on a TensorFlow tutorial? No. And I'm okay with that. And the same is true of multiple programming languages like, hey, there's Android and iOS. If I'm not building mobile apps, I am not going to keep up with the latest trends in mobile software development. I'm just not. But I might be curious, right? Like, for example, um, I'm using this popular tool called Clubhouse, right? It's this audio-only social media platform. And it turns out I want to use my nice, fancy podcast microphone to talk on that platform. It doesn't work. As soon as you go to the app, it just uses the default mic and audio setup that you use for making phone calls. So I'm like, what are they doing? So then I just go look at the iOS SDKs and say, if I were going to build an app and I want to give users the choice between using the default system microphone and the one that they have connected through uh, USB-C or something like that, how would you do it? And then you see the libraries that it's possible. So as an engineer, I say, look, this is possible. Maybe I'll send an email to the team working on Clubhouse to say, hey, I'm not an iOS developer, but it's possible to use core audio to select a different audio interface. I would like to do that. So then maybe I keep up with this trend that most of these audio only apps default to the system microphone for some reason. Maybe it's an Apple security thing, or maybe they just haven't gotten around to it. But again, it's only because I had a particular problem that encouraged me to go check out what's going on in that particular space. Yep, totally makes sense. But I mean, uh, what I was thinking about is like more, more into the innovation space, right? So when we talk about the problem, it's not innovation anymore, or we, we probably uh, can think of new ways of solving the same problem that was solved before. But uh, for instance, um, I don't know. VR. So about innovation, how right? did how did VR appear, for instance? All right, Someone so let's think about innovation, it. right? Some people say innovation, right? I'm going to innovate and do something yeah, that has yeah. never been done before. So you're not going to go look at any tools because you don't even understand the problem yet. So you're going to spend most of your time trying to get that problem in front of you. So if you want to build VR, you're going to ask yourself, I know what TD, 2D does. We know what 3D is. We know how that works. But we want is to interact with the world like we interact now. And someone will say, whoa, that's a, that's a tough problem. What you're going to need is this is the state-of-the-art technologies. Well, I want people to be able to wear it on their head. 
It's like, well, now you got to learn about how humans and their eyes operate together with their mind. Here's some research around that. Once you get all the research, you might actually find that there's nothing that you can download to just play with. So that approach of like downloading a bunch of stuff and playing with like, that's not innovation. That's called, that's like shopping. Like if you're going to bake a cake, you're not innovating on bakery. You're not. These cakes have already been baked. If you find a recipe or you're walking down the grocery aisle and it's like, hey, here's an ingredient that goes into cakes. That's not innovating. That's like getting the ingredient, put it in the cake and tasting it to say, oh, this cake actually tastes good. Now you can mix other things that maybe other people haven't tried before. Like you want to remix something like what if I put pepper in a cake? What would that taste like? Maybe I'll try it. I think that's really what it comes down to. So maybe you do have a creative moment where you say, I, I think this is where engineers get into trouble. We're bored. You say, hey, this thing is working great. Hmm. I bet it can be faster. Do we need it to be faster? No, but I bet I can make it faster. So I'm going to rewrite the compiler so that well, we can inline some of these calls. Now, look, if there are real people, you know, having this problem, maybe that's where you spend your time. But a lot of times we catch ourselves just doing, you know, I don't like Node.js anymore. I like, I like Haskell. So we're going to rewrite everything to Haskell. And you say, but why? It's like, because I want everything to be pure. I want to avoid side effects. You're like, what are you talking about? You're going to eventually have something like, no, it's going to be pure. So I think a lot of times we're convincing ourselves. We need to stay up to date on all of these things. Just say, look, we like technology, right? If you like cars, you may want to go test drive cars, even though you don't need them, even though you may not even be able to buy them, right? You might just say, I like cars. So I think what technologists can do is say, we like technology. We like new frameworks, even the ones we don't need. We just want to see what the art of the possible is. Maybe we don't have to use it in production. We just want to stay up to date. I think that is totally fine, but we have to separate it from it's our professional responsibility to know about all these things versus our curiosity to want to know about these things. Well, while you were uh, speaking, I, I, I was thinking about science fiction. A lot of things that we haven't seen in real life actually appeared somewhere in books or scientific or fantasy movies, right? Uh, I'm I'm just recalling Johnny Mnemonic where, when he was putting on this VR thing on on his uh, like helmet on on, on his head and uh, doing something with special joysticks or whatever they were the gloves. I I don't remember at that time it wasn't kind of a, a common technology or anything like that. But hey, in 40 years now we do have all that in in the grocery stores. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what you're kind of describing, though, is people typically will imagine the problem or create a problem that they would like to see solved. And to me, that exercise, to me, in some cases, can be more important than just looking at all the tools available. Because who creates, who, who's the one that takes time to step away from the keyboard to say, what problems are in the world? What could be? Even if I don't, even if I can't find a tool that could do it yet, what what should be possible? And this is where I think having room like science fiction that you've alluded to, a place and space to imagine what could be possible. And then maybe you're right. Over time, people would say we could create that, right? There's a way to do that. 
I don't have all the answers in this decade. Maybe it will take two more to get to. Um, but yeah, we still need to validate some of these problems. I think there's been a lot of problems humans have cooked up that turned out maybe society would have been better without them. Even if they're convenient, they're not necessarily always the best for a human being. Can you give an example? Um, if you think about uh, a cell phone, for example, there are a lot of people addicted to a cell phone, right? We always talk about the pros of a mobile device, right? You have maps, you have a calculator, you can transfer money to people. But what about the side effect of saying people spending 10 plus hours scrolling, scrolling, scrolling? And if you've ever seen any of the sci-fi movies since you mentioned them, like Wally, where society gets to a point where all we do is we sit down and we stare at a screen and there is no more point to live. Everything can just be virtualized. Now, some people may say, that'd be great. I can be an avatar and live in this digital world and buy digital clothes and just sit there with the convenience of VR and never have to move and eat food through a straw. That's not, that doesn't sound awesome to me. Like the things that make us human is that things are hard. You can't jump higher than you can jump. You can't jump off a tree without getting hurt. Like there's, there's limitations to it, but those limitations are what to me defines life. And so if you try to remove them all and put us all in front of a screen, who are you at that point? Right? So to me, I think there's limitations to a lot of things, right? Some people would argue certain weapons, what benefit do they have to society other than to create war? Some people say, well, depending on what side of the war you're on, it's a very great tool, but kind of the consensus is there's really no winners when we think about how humans are connected. So there's lots of technology that I think people would look at and say, did we really, really need that? Will we rethink that if we knew what the side effect was, right? That's the decisions we have to make, like software developers. Do I really want to import this library? Hmm? Is, I, is there a security trade-off to this? Like, should I even be using it? Should I read the code that's underneath these covers? These are things that I think from a technology point standpoint, ethics and responsibility are, are part of technology. Technology, how we serialize our cultures and build tools for ourselves, but not all of those things are going to be in the best interest for human beings. You just, just a uh, funny stuff. Uh, you mentioned like um, scrolling being a problem. Like if you scroll with the finger and I, I was thinking like, how can we solve this problem so that you don't have to use the finger? But that, that just- It was functionality for uh, <laughs> LG. Uh, phones a while ago where you could look and it actually somehow it looks like magic it scrolls without you like scrolling you just look uh, at the bottom of the page and, and look, it, some, there's somebody solved this like problem already improving the UX there right so it's not really a problem of using your finger or having sophisticated yeah, sure, sure, sure. I think when you have a person scrolling through other people living oh look at these people outside playing basketball oh look at this person planting flowers all day. You're watching everyone else live and you can just go outside and look at the flowers. You can go outside and listen to the wind blow or you can go on your computer and watch other people listen to the wind blow. That, that, that to me is this, like this constant struggle society has that there is a life, you have limited time. And so this act of gamifying endless content versus creating content of your own, right? There's nothing wrong with just going outside 
looking at the world and just taking it in, right? We don't necessarily have to put it on Snapchat or some other social media. You can just enjoy the world for what it is. So I just think that life can't just be a thing where we figure out how to sit in front of a screen forever. That's true. Oli, do you have any other um, interesting No, I was just thinking the- that uh, while in quarantine and all this pandemic stuff, you kind of have to look a lot at your screen. Well, do you? I mean, I, I learned how to cook a lot more dishes during quarantine. Yeah, I, I just mean I don't have to. Uh, I mean, I, I don't go to the office now and I have to spend a lot of time at meetings and I don't go to conferences in, in these terms. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think the having a screen to fill in the gaps of things we would have had to do anyway. Yeah, these are extreme circumstances. So I'm not saying the fact that we're using those tools are necessarily a bad thing, right? Someone asked me, what would I do if I retire? Now, 10 years ago, I, ha- I was struggling for an answer. Someone said, if you had the ultimate freedom to do whatever you want, what would you do? And when you draw a blank, the next thing I ask myself, why don't I have an answer for this? Am I kind of stuck in this loop where if I was completely free, unconcerned with those things, that I couldn't do anything else with my time? How do I get to a point where I wouldn't know what to do with my own time and freedom, right? So that's where I look at these things. So yes, if I got to take a meeting and I can't do it in person, I can use my phone to hear the other person's voice, or I can jump on a video call like this to interact with those people and enjoy like body language and being able to see their face. Totally agreed. But at some point we all get fatigued, right? Like at some point you say, that's enough. I can't do this uh, for eight hours a day. Yeah, on our previous episode with Scott Hanselman, we were discussing techniques how to get less fatigue uh, from Zoom calls. And he was saying that he has uh, a good display, like uh, TV, and he turns on speakers and has a little microphone. And uh, he feels almost quotes here like in person because he sees like a uh, real size um, like something to close real size people and he can walk during his um, during his meetings so that helps him Uh, what do you do to have Um, less I'll I'll use my phone a bit more like so you know I don't won't set up the whole screen and everything but I'll just take my phone, put my headphones in and just go for a walk. All right. I can go breathe. I can walk around. I can move and I can hear the other person. Right. And so that has been nice. Right. So I can combine a little bit of exercise, getting out of the four walls. And now it kind of feels like I'm walking with the person. Right. As we're communicating about a thing. So that's been a nice way to kind of break things up. Not all of my meetings, of course, but there are some meetings, especially if I know the person already. I think video is good when you're kind of getting to know someone or meeting them for the first time. But if you really know someone, then sometimes you can just do audio, like when you call your friends, right? And just you just you probably know what they're looking like when they say something, you understand the inflections in their voice, et cetera. So that's one of the tricks that I like to do or cleaning up. I'll talk to people while I'm doing the dishes or something like that. 
Nice. I I I don't know. I don't really do anything specific except probably sometimes I have my dog running around me and that helps me a lot. Anyway, uh so I think uh we can uh wrap up here because uh we're already talking a lot of time and thank you so much for coming. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, all right. Anton. Yep. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>